I'm Rose, and this is Flash Forward. Flash Forward is a show about the future. Every episode, we try to really overthink how a specific tomorrow might play out. We always start with a little audio field trip to the future, and then we jump back to today to talk with real experts, not fake future ones, about what that future might really be like. Okay, let's start this future in the year 2020. Welcome to the Crystal Dream, the world's largest cruise ship to head to the beautiful frozen Arctic. For years, the Arctic was only accessible to burly adventurers willing to suffer the cold and wind. But now, you too can see what those men risked their lives to witness, the incredible beauty of the tip of our planet. Aboard the Crystal Dream, you'll get the best of both worlds, incredibly luxurious accommodations, the finest dining, opulent suites, spas, and more. As the ship sails through the picturesque Northwest Passage, you'll see polar bears, seals, whales, and exotic local cultures. It's the adventure of a lifetime, and it could be yours today. Officials in Nunavut are warning private ships to steer clear of the Northwest Passage today, as a recent ice melt event has pushed a large iceberg into the passage. Four private yachts have already needed rescue after colliding with the iceberg. So far, there are no injuries. Locals clashed with private vacationers today in Pond Inlet, Nunavut. The locals say that private yachts are disrupting their hunting and that tourists have routinely interrupted sacred rituals to take photographs. The Canadian government has regulations overseeing the number of cruise ships that can pass through the area, but private yachts are still free to come and go as they please in the region. Pond Inlet recently announced that they would allow no private vessels to dock in their community, and when a yacht recently attempted to defy that order, they were turned back without enough fuel or food to make it to the next village. The Arctic. The Last Frontier. At the very tip of our planet, where temperatures get down to 50 degrees below zero. A place few could go without a rescue crew and a team of dogs. But now, you can be one of the few to sail to the Arctic and live to tell the tale. Lodestar Adventures can take you there. So this is a future where the Arctic is totally open to tourism. And I said that this would happen in the year 2020 because it's kind of already happening. Last year, a giant cruise ship called the Crystal Serenity sailed from New York to Anchorage, Alaska. For most of human history, that trip would have meant going south and around the United States and then back up the western coast of America. But the Crystal Serenity went the other way around. Billed as the ultimate expedition for the true explorer, the 32-day trip took passengers up into Canada and across what's called the Northwest Passage and through the Bering Sea. I will post a map of this route online, but basically, instead of going south and around, the ship went up and around, through some of the most remote waters in the Arctic. Waters that, until recently, were almost always completely frozen. So it's up north, it's above Canada. Um, it's basically the passage that connects the Atlantic to the Pacific. That's Ariel Duhame-Ross, a climate and environment correspondent for HBO's Vice News Tonight. And for a really, really long time, it's been like this route that nobody, that people can go through, 
um, with boats. But, it, you know, the first person who did it was in the early uh, 1900s. And he, you know, it took him three years to do it because there was so much thick pack ice. So it's, it's definitely like not a place that has been thought of as accessible. But thanks to climate change, the Earth is getting warmer and the passage is melting more and more every year. Slowly but surely, over the past 20 years, ships have started sailing through the Northwest Passage. But so far, they've been pretty small. Now, big cruise ships like the Crystal Serenity are sizing up the Arctic as one of the last truly remote tourist destinations. And they're getting ready to start sailing, sending hordes of tourists in big, puffy jackets up into a region that traditionally very few people could access. And Ariel actually went up to a community called Pond Inlet, which is way up north in Nunavut, to report on the Crystal Serenity. Yes, it's the first, like, very large, there are 1,700 passenger, or, like, passenger and crew who were on the boat. And yeah, it's the first, like, large cruise ship to go through there. You might have heard about the Crystal Serenity, because a lot of people were really worried that it was going to hit an iceberg and pull a Titanic. I think that on the whole, like, they had no issues. They were on time the whole time. Um, but if you think about it in terms of if something were to go wrong, it is a dangerous trip because, you know, getting medevacs for, uh, for that kind of a boat for for that many people is like not really feasible. Because this was really the first ship of its kind making this trip, the people behind the Crystal Serenity actually did a whole lot of planning to try and reduce this risk. The boat was trailed by a support ship, a research vessel called the RRS Ernest Shackleton. The Shackleton had the capability to break ice if it needed to and had two helicopters on board just in case. The Serenity itself was equipped with ice detection radar, two ice pilots, and a ton of other safety upgrades. And thankfully, nothing bad happened. They did not hit any icebergs. The ship sailed through the Northwest Passage, the passengers disembarked at several communities, and they made it through without a problem. But the Crystal Serenity was a big, giant, bedazzled wake-up call for a lot of people. It officially ushered in a new era for the Arctic, turning it into a real, bona fide, big-time tourist destination. And some people are really excited about this development. Nancy Guillon is the director of tourism and cultural industries for Nunavut, the northernmost Canadian territory. Okay, I will make this very simple, as I'm explaining to my father, who lives in Quebec. Nunavut is above Quebec. We're parallel to Greenland, right? They are our closest neighbors. And Nancy's job is to try and figure out how to harness this new interest in the Arctic for the good of Nunavut. It's a land, it's a, a, of possibilities. I will not say a blank page because it's not a... There's some stuff happening, but it's everything it's ready to do and people are ready to, you know, to get in tourism industry, but not at any price, though. But um, that's very, very interesting for me. In the past 10 years, tourism in Nunavut has gone from mostly adventure-based, dog sledding, hunting trips, survival stuff, to more of the cush, relaxing vacations that appeal to a lot more people. In the past, Nunavut has seen small pleasure cruises, boats that carry maybe 100, 200 people. But now they're seeing these much bigger, fancier boats that can bring over 1,000 passengers up into the region. And they expect to continue to see those big boats. Actually, um, there's, uh, there are trends that indicate that the cruise uh, ship industry in Nunavut will continue to experience consistent, predictable growth over the next decade. 
That is basically government speak for, yes, there are more cruise ships and there will be more cruise ships. And Nancy's job is to figure out how to optimize that growth. Always, always uh, thinking in the back of our head that it's well developed, it's with right regulation, with consultation with the communities. It brings job to the territory. It brings economic development. So, and it brings, uh, I would say, like another future and possibilities, a world of possibilities for new jobs, for having people working in the tourism industry. And for some people along the route, this uptick in tourism has already been great. It's really interesting because we spoke to a lot of uh, the artists there that were trying to sell stuff. Some get a lot of money. Like this, this there's a guy who lives in Paninlet who is a really well-known Canadian artist who has sculptures all over Canada. Um, and he he makes a lot of money when people come in. But there are also tensions between making the Arctic a great tourist destination and bringing in money for Nunavut and making sure that tourism is actually good for the local communities involved. Take Pond Inlet, for example. It's a tiny community. Just over 1,500 people live there. It's beautiful. Um, it's really, really beautiful. It's, uh, it's like 1,500 people, um, largely an Inuit community. Like, there are white people there, but um, mostly it's, it's Inuit. Um, and it's like a lot of like wooden houses, like small wooden houses. Uh, they have two churches. Um, and it's, it's, it's like federal government housing, um, because, you know, they used to be much more like nomadic. So they used to like, you know, go from place to place. And then essentially, uh, maybe in the like 1950s, the Canadian government was like, you're going to be living here and there's going to be a town here. Um, so it's, it's very much like a community that is not like it's not part of their culture to live the way that they do now. Pond Inlet is so far north that it's really hard to grow very much food. Food is crazy expensive there. Um, so it's it's flown in once a week, but once a year they get this gigantic cargo ship. One of the things that was the most memorable to me about the piece that Ariel did for Vice News Tonight about Pond Inlet and this cruise was the shots that they had from inside the grocery store. Bell peppers were over $5 a pound, and a box of frozen chicken strips was $27. When we went there, it's funny because they had just gotten that cargo ship, so those prices actually go shoot up. Oh, um, And it's actually, like, <laughs> it's actually a lot worse than what we were able to see because they had just gotten that, that huge shipment. Um, and then after that, things get a lot more expensive, um, which is why they rely so much on what they call country food, which is just like the marine mammals and whatever they can hunt. So Pond Inlet is this tiny community with a really limited food supply. Plus, just by showing up, these ships might also be disrupting the other major food source for Pond Inlet. Yeah, well, I want to like preface that by saying that a lot of this is anecdotal right now. There is a large body of research that says that ships in general disrupt marine mammals. Like that is not something that is something that is well studied um, because it makes it hard for them to communicate. Um, so they can't necessarily find each other. If they want to reproduce, it's difficult. If they want to find food, the marine mammals have trouble. Um, but a lot of the stuff about, like, the Inuit there saying, like, hey, like, these ships are, like, scaring the marine mammals, like, that is what they have found. Like, they have found that certain animals are changing their roots um, and that they're, ha they're having to go further out to find these animals. And actually, it's kind of a big problem because if the animals are further out, then they're not migrating the way they're, they're used to, and they might get trapped in the ice in the winter. Like, they're really worried about the narwhals getting trapped in the ice because they're not making it out past the Northwest Passage to, to do their, like, regular migration route. And if the ships don't scare away those seals and whales that the locals rely on, and they do successfully hunt, 
that can also freak out the tourists. But you can imagine that tourists don't necessarily want to see a slaughtered seal or a slaughtered whale on the beach when they show up. That's Jackie Dawson. She's the Canada Research Chair in Environment, Society and Policy at the University of Ottawa. And she has done a ton of work studying the ways tourism impacts people and the environment in places like Pond Inlet. So there was a lot of tension between the cultural tradition of the community and um, what tourists want to see. They want to see this authentic or what they think is authentic, but really it's a commodified version of tourism. Um, And in there, the tourist minds, you know, they they don't want to see a bloody animal on the beach. But really, that is the way of life. That is, you know, that is how people live. And have for a long time. So there's lots of tensions. So when the Crystal Serenity shows up with over a thousand people on board, it's basically doubling the population of Pond Inlet for an afternoon. And if any of those thousand tourists want to use the bathroom, it's actually a huge problem. It's actually really a problem when there's a large amount of people who come to Pond Inlet in terms of how they treat their their sewage and like Oh, like there's yeah. a huge issue because it's trucks that come to the houses. Like there's there's there are two hotels in the town and one that has a restaurant. There's only one restaurant in town. The hotel there refused to let passengers use their bathrooms. Um, they were not allowed. Like that was they said no outright because they told me like the the woman who works in the kitchen there was like no I like we cannot handle it. Like our toilets will overflow. Like we will have an issue if you have all of these people come here. And then they're trying to figure out, like, so the Crystal Serenity had to try and figure out, like, another spot where passengers, like, were, would be able to go. So I think they went, ended up going to the community center. And I don't know how they handled all of that. Like, I have no idea. And that's another thing. Like, they don't have the plumbing infrastructure to deal with a bunch of people having to go. Like, they just don't. So there's the question of food and waste and resources. But there's also this kind of trickier problem of how to make sure that these tourists are respectful more generally, and they don't treat the locals like zoo animals. Tourists were getting off the ships at this time. Now, this was 10 years ago, actually more like 15 years ago now. Tourists were getting off the ship and walking around and sticking their faces in the windows of their houses and opening the doors as if they were museum pieces. They'd never seen a northern Inuit community, and so there was a real lack of understanding uh, among the visitors that this was a community, that people lived here, and that you couldn't just treat it like a museum Uh, So that was one of their main complaints back, you know, over a decade ago. I saw a tourist pick up a child and move the child and place the child back down again and take a photo so that there was a glacier in the background of the photo. I mean, and that was only about five years ago. So there's still, there's still some issues. Arielle says she saw the same thing on her trip. The number of times that I saw, actually not so much for the people on the Crystal Serenity, there were other cruise ships the day before um, they were there, but the number of times that I saw passengers on cruise ships taking pictures of kids without parents' permission, or like playing with the kids, like it, it felt so icky. It was, it was, it felt so icky. All of this is happening now, when only a few ships come through each year. Nancy and her team are aware of these issues, too, and they're trying to figure out how to make sure that tourists and locals are both benefiting from these trips. But she says she's not worried about these negatives. But she does think about them, and she's trying to figure out how to make this whole situation a win-win for everybody. 
Um, I would not say worry because um, just because if I worry, I will not develop. I will not have this uh, unique job to to developing. But I think it's more a question of risk management. But what happens in the future when cruise ship traffic really explodes? When it's not just one or two big ships like the Crystal Serenity, but hundreds? When we come back, we're going to talk about what that future looks like. But first, a word from our sponsors. So let's go to the future, when cruises to the Arctic really start to expand. And that won't just happen in Canada. The ice all around the northern part of our globe is melting. I mean, each Arctic region is quite different. But in Canada, before, we only had the odd ship before 2005. So one, some years there was a ship, some years there wasn't. And around 2005, we, we had about six ships. Then 2006 came around and all of a sudden we had around 18 or 20 ships coming. Um, and nowadays we have, um, and when I say ships, I mean voyages. Sometimes it's the same ship doing two cruises in the same season. Nowadays it goes up and down, but we fluctuate around 22 to 27 voyages in the Canadian Arctic. But that is very different in Greenland and Svalbard where they're talking about um, you know, 90, 80 or 90 voyages. So this future is a little bit unlike some of the other ones that I do on this show, because it's a future that is honestly kind of inevitable. I mean, it's happening now. It's going to happen. This isn't space pirates dragging a second moon to Earth. This is a very near future. But it wasn't always a given that this was going to be our future. It wasn't always obvious that tourism would push this far north. In fact, just a couple of years ago, Jackie says she didn't think it would happen. You know what? Five years ago, I would have said absolutely not. We, we, there's so many barriers. For example, there's just not that many ice-strengthened ships that you can charter for tourism. People aren't going to spend the money to build ships just for tourism vessels. But that is, has all changed. And people are starting to build tourism-specific vessels. They used to just retrofit vessels. Um, so I do think we're heading in that direction. I don't think that Canada can handle the number of ships that are in um, Greenland and Svalbard, but that doesn't mean they're not going to come. So what changed? Why are people suddenly flocking north now? Jackie says it's a couple of different things. The first is pretty obvious, climate change. Researchers at UCLA have projected that the Northwest Passage might be totally ice-free by 2050, which is really soon. And that's something that big commercial cargo ships have been eyeing for a while. And it makes sense for cargo ships, right? If you can find a more direct route to where you're going, you can save money and therefore you can make money. But when it comes to sending tourists up there, there are a few other things driving that boom. People are egocentric individuals and they want to go to the last frontier. They want to be, um, you know, people want to bag firsts and lasts. Uh, you know, the first to climb Everest, the first to, you know, go to the North Pole, whatever. But nowadays, people want to be the last to see um, a glacier before it melts. They want to be the last to see the polar bears before they're extinct or, you know, so they're being told by the media that they'll go extinct. So there is this weird little niche market that we're calling last chance tourists. And that we've seen that a major increase in demand that is directly related to people just wanting to go see the Arctic before it's going to be changed forever. Um, and, and of course, climate change is what's driving this idea that it's going to be changed forever. But some of the things that make the Arctic so appealing are also things that might go away if it's suddenly inundated with cruise ships. 
and it's personal. I think it will be on the, you know, the, the wish list of more and more people to be able to see Arctic, to be able to see uh, wildlife, to be able to, yeah, to experience the unique uh, landscape, the uniqueness of this uh, pristine environment, the quietness also that we don't have any access anymore, not much. Uh, in our cities and our neighborhoods. So here it's very, very, very different. Pristine environments, quietness, those are two things I don't necessarily equate with a lot of cruises. Now, there is some dark humor, I guess, in this cruise, right? I mean, climate change is disproportionately caused by wealthy people, the exact wealthy people who are able to spend tens of thousands of dollars on a cruise through the passageway that is now open thanks to the climate change that they helped to cause. And this is not lost on people. Over at Slate, Will Arimus called the cruise, quote, a massive, diesel-burning, waste-dumping, ice-destroying, golf-ball-smacking middle finger to what remains of the planet, courtesy of precisely 1,089 of its richest and most destructive inhabitants. And Jackie says that at first she was actually inclined to agree with him. I know the irony, eh? The irony of it is really hilarious. When I first started thinking about this, I was, you know, took that stance, oh, this is a, this is a horrible thing. Um, because of course, going to the Arctic, you're releasing greenhouse gas emissions and creating, you know, contributing to the problem. But she says that she's softened her view a little bit after taking a closer look at the cruises. But most of these people are extremely educated, motivated, and they in turn become ambassadors for the region. So we, really great companies, like there's a Canadian company called Adventure Canada, and they offer different programs where you can offset your carbon emissions and, um, you know, donate to different organizations like Polar Bears International, etc. So, and these people going, they have money usually because it's not cheap to go. So I, I don't know if they all fully comprehend the connection, but they're definitely typically engaged and um, educated citizens. And Nancy and her team have been working on best practices, guides for ships and their passengers. Many of them employ guides to prepare visitors and make sure they're culturally conscious in their interactions. Many of those guides are Inuit people themselves. A number of the smaller cruises bring scientists along to give lectures about climate change and the science behind why these ships can even sail through these waters in the first place. Now, how many people on board actually go to those lectures? I do not know, but it's a start. So what happens next? What does 2020 look like? So in the short term, there's likely to be this rapid increase, and there has been. I mean, this is what we kind of expected um, because people are excited. It's new. It's open. The Northwest Passage, you can generally get through pretty much every year now, and that's where people want to go. It's a very exciting place. Um, but there will be potentially at some point a tipping point where there's too many vessels, the region can't support it, and we'll see some sort of crash. I mean, we see this. I mean, this is a very basic business cycle where you see, you know, development, rapid development, and then there's sort of a threshold at which you can't really handle this um, amount of development. And then and then we could see some sort of crash. Now, and, and when I say crash, what I mean is I think it's highly likely that we will at some point see some sort of catastrophic um, situation. Um, in, you know, we almost had a ship sink in 2011, the only reason it didn't sink was because it got stuck on an underwater flat cliff. Um, but in the Antarctic, they had a vessel, you know, the explorer hit an iceberg and, and sunk in the Antarctic. 
they got everyone off. But I mean, I think it's a matter of time before we see some sort of major disaster, be it environmental or human or, or something. So there's there's a tipping point somewhere. So there will almost certainly be more ships. And one of the big concerns people have is that future ships might not do all of the planning that the Crystal Serenity did. That trip took years and years to plan, and they made sure to have every possible safety backup that they could think of. And that's in part because they were the first, and there were so many eyeballs on them. But as these trips get more normal, and as companies try to cut corners and make more money by spending less, we will probably see a dip in safety procedures. The Crystal Serenity, they did a really good job planning. They spent years planning. But the next ship, there's no real requirement for that. So the the worry is the next ship that comes in that doesn't plan as well as the Crystal Serenity did. And yes, absolutely people are worried about that. I mean, search and rescue is a challenge. Canada has six icebreakers, five of which are typically operational. They're all reaching the end of their age of operation. We have plans to maybe build another one that keep getting delayed. And our, the, the Canadian Arctic is enormous. Um, we just we do not have the kind of search and rescue services that would be needed should we have a, the, t- the number of cruise ships that other Arctic nations have. We just we're not there. So we're going to be playing catch up. And beyond safety concerns, a lot of people are worried about what a sudden influx of tourists might do to local communities. No matter how much good planning Nancy and her team does, there's no way that everybody is going to be happy. Just like in the United States, the Canadian government's relationship with First Nations people is a rocky one. There isn't a whole lot of trust there, and for good reason. Just to back up one second along these lines, I think... What's really interesting about this is that tourism could be a second colonization of the region. So I don't know if you know the history of Arctic Canada, but um, these are forced relocations, so forced settlements. So back in the 40s, 50s, 60s, we took, uh, the Canadian government took Inuit groups, which were in different places, and moved them to the Arctic in, in these particular communities where they are now, for reasons of sovereignty and sort of, you know, staking claims. So there's a real negative history of colonization in the region. And so there is this idea among local residents that um, tourism could be a second colonization of the region. So it could take over the region in a way that the federal government did in the past. This is a classic problem when it comes to tourism, right? How do you balance keeping people happy and safe and maintaining communities while also opening up a region and trying to bring in tourist dollars? And of course, locals don't all agree. Some see the boom in tourists and their big puffy jackets as a great thing, an influx of money into communities that are often just scraping by. Others see an intrusion, a colonial force, an influx that does more harm than good. It's a mixed bag what what local people think. Some people are pretty excited about it, um, and some people are really not thrilled at all. Some people hide the entire season. If a cruise ship comes, they're just hiding. They just go in their house and hide. And you can hide when it's just one or two ships a year, but that doesn't work when it's a hundred ships a year. So some communities might just decide that they don't want to participate. They don't want cruise ships. They'd rather the ships just sail by and they can wave from the shore. Arielle says that she suspects some local communities will try to turn cruise ships away. But right now, the actual rules about how that would work are really murky. There are no rules that negotiate how much they need to pay to dock. Like, it's very much a negotiation between this small town and this ship. And what are you going to do? Say no? Like, 
you you know these governments like may, maybe want these ships to stop by yeah so it, it is technically a local decision there are communities like um clyde river and i think arctic bay might have too they just said no no cruise ships we're not allowing cruise ships for the next five years so that's possible so some communities that know that they can do that do that um but then the territorial government is starting to try to regulate these sort of things so they're putting in They've put together some official regulations, but mostly it's governed through voluntary guidelines um, that that aren't, you know, sort of legally binding. I mean, technically, you could you can say no cruise ships, but a cruise ship could still show up. Obviously, they would wouldn't be welcomed very warmly. But there's no sort of law in place that says you cannot stop at this community. But the government in Canada has taken the first step. They are at least thinking about this. Yeah, now they're, oh, absolutely. It's it's definitely in the public consciousness now. Ten years ago, I was fighting. I was fighting all the time. We would talk about shipping and the Arctic and governance and whatever. And I would say, and don't forget about the cruise ships. Because everyone was talking about resource ships and, and et cetera. But nowadays, it is definitely on the agenda. But Jackie says there's also an element of this conversation that they are not talking about. And one that worries her a lot more which is private ships. The Canadian government has some control over how many cruise ships come in and out and how they operate. It's a complex relationship, one that has give and take on both sides, but it does exist. With private ships, however, there's really nothing that anybody can do to regulate them. The, the big cruise ships are one thing, but the thing that we haven't talked about yet are the little yachts. So the private yachts that are that are heading up. And that's the right now, that is the fastest growing marine sector in the Canadian Arctic. And that sector grew by 400 percent since 2005. So so those little boats we need to start paying attention to also. We can't we can't regulate those little boats. They fall. They're under 300 gross tons. None of the regulation applies to them. They can go where, where they want, when they want. They probably haven't, you know, necessarily looked up all the websites about information about you know communities and things so nowadays I used to fight I used to fight to get attention on the the issue of cruise ships and now I'm fighting to get attention on those small vessels and on a private ship there are no tour guides there are no first nations people guiding them they just kind of show up and do whatever they want I guess and the thing that both Jackie and Ariel worried most about is the toll that these kinds of visitors might take on traditional communities. Sure, some of these people might be quite well educated and be there for the right reasons. Others might not. I don't think that necessarily having like a bunch of tourists come into these towns will make racism go away because then they'll what there'll be more contact with the Inuit communities. Like, no, they, the Inuit communities will just experience more racism. Like, that is a thing that will happen. So, yeah, that's another thing that I envision. Like, it, that's, that's another future for them. It's just like have, being confronted with more ignorance. You're just going to have a community that's going to get whacked in the face by racism over and over and over and over again. And it's going to be so painful. Some communities might decide that this is worth enduring for the money, which is a pretty awful calculus to have to do. I think that it'll be a question of how angry they get and whether they allow themselves to express that anger. Um, And I also think it'll be a question of like how much they end up relying on the money that the cruise ships bring in and or give them to dock. There's a lot that people will put up with if they get uh, a little bit of money like 
for, you know, three days of incredibly painful interactions. Um, like, communities of color are very, very used to taking, um, to, to, like, living with a lot of, like, terrible things um, because they need to make ends meet and they need to feed themselves. Right now, the Arctic is at a bit of a critical point. Leaders could figure out a way to preserve the Arctic, allow for some tourism, and maintain the health and well-being of local communities. And I do think that they are trying. But it's really complicated, and nobody can really agree on what the best course of action is. It's possible our future is one of well-regulated Arctic tourism, where some people can go up and see this, and the communities make money, and everybody's happy. But it could be that the Arctic tourism boom is really detrimental, and we don't really know what will happen yet. We'll just have to wait and see. That's all for this future. If you want to learn more about Arctic tourism, melting sea ice, and what the future of exploring the Northwest Passage might be, head to flashforwardpod.com, where I will post links to more resources. If you're interested in keeping up with news about Native communities in the U.S. and Canada, there's this podcast that I really like called National Native News. It's a daily podcast, but it's just five minutes every day, and it's all dedicated to Native issues. Um, They are not paying me to say this. I don't think they even know that I'm saying this, but you should check it out. Um, I feel like it makes me a lot more informed. Check it out on your podcasting app. National Native News is what it's called. Flash Forward is produced by me, Rose Evelyn. The intro music is by Asura, and the outro music is by Hussalonia. The music from our future scenes this episode was by Boxcat Games and Orlab. Special thanks to John Olier, Kimberly Schaefer, Bektur Ruskaldiev, Ari Barnofsky, and Jennifer G. Chung. The episode art is by Matt Lipchansky. If you want to suggest a future that we should take on, send me a note on Twitter, Facebook, or by email at info at flashforwardpod.com. I love hearing your ideas. I try to respond to everybody. Um, I do read all of the emails myself. uh, So if I haven't responded, it's just that I'm busy. Sorry. And if you think you've spotted one of the little references I've hidden in this episode, email me there too. If you are right, I will send you something cool. And if you want to support the show, there are a couple of ways you can do that, too. Go to flashforwardpod.com support, and you can see all the different ways that you can give financially. And if that's not something you can do, that's totally fine. You can head to iTunes and leave us a nice review, or just tell your friends about us. Most of the people I hear from heard about this show through a friend, so be that friend to someone. And shout out to the people who are listening to this uh, show as a podcast book club situation. I think that's really cool, and I really appreciate you. Okay, that's all for this episode. See you in the future.